God's holy and infallible word for Matthew 5, beginning at verse 1. Now when he saw the crowds, and this is Jesus, of course, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There are a lot of people that call the Sermon on the Mount the greatest sermon ever preached. And it's said to be the most well-known of all of Jesus' teachings, but at the same time, the least understood and least obeyed of all of Jesus' teachings. We're calling this sermon series, Living Your Blessed Life Now, because The Sermon on the Mount is about Christian living. Joel Osteen and Oprah Winfrey have told people how to live their best life. But Jesus connects how we live with being blessed. The opening verses of the Sermon on the Mount are called the Beatitudes. Uh, They are eight blessings. And the idea of blessing makes us, in our living, first look outside of ourselves. We can have a blessed life because God has done something to us first. He has saved us by His sovereign grace. Because of that, we're blessed now and for all eternity, and so we want to live for the Lord. The Sermon on the Mount shows us the way of blessing that we want to live for all that Jesus has done for us. Talking about living for the Lord today, I I really think we struggle with that as Christians in our day. It seems like, I hear people saying that it was a little simpler, more straightforward 50 years ago. And it's because it seems like more people in our country were on the same page then. But in the last years, as a lot of people have put it, Christians are moving from being the home team to the visiting team. And that's a lot tougher position to be in, to play on the road. You have hecklers. you got booze around you as you seek to be a Christian. We remember sanctity of human life this time of year. In fact, we've got an opportunity to support CareNet Pregnancy Services starting today with our annual Coins for CareNet project. But the lack of respect uh, for, for life with just seems like a very basic human value. It just grieves us that it's not there. Holiness that we talked about last Sunday as we finished up the book of Zechariah. Holiness is a challenge. Holiness means being set apart. And that's what living the blessed life always is. Being holy, set apart. And that's a tough thing to do. How do we do that? How do we live for Jesus with the complex problems in our society and world? How do we shine the light? What is the blessed life and what does that mean today? How do we live it now, today, in 2016? The Sermon on the Mount shows us these things. Before hitting that first beatitude, I want to share five reasons for us 
to study the Sermon on the Mount. And not just five reasons for us to study, but five reasons to get excited about studying the Sermon on the Mount. These reasons excite me, and these are all from one of the great preachers in the past who's preached on these verses, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. You might have heard of him. These are the reasons he gives, and I add a little bit to them, but they're basically from him. One, Christ went to the cross and died so that we may live the Sermon on the Mount. We read in Titus 2.14 that Jesus died to make himself a special people who are eager to do what is good. Jesus' death was so that we might live, right? And the Sermon on the Mount shows us that way. The Sermon on the Mount shows us the way to live. So Jesus died so we could live this way. Second, the Sermon on the Mount shows us our great need. And that's important. It shows us our need for the Holy Spirit and His work in our lives. Jesus' teachings are really really tough in these verses. You know, it's in the Sermon on the Mount that we get, don't be angry at your brother. Don't look at a woman lustfully. Love your enemies. Now, how are we supposed to do that in a day of ISIS? Love your enemies? And on and on it goes in the sermon. And and if you take it all seriously like we should, and if you take it to heart, the Sermon on the Mount just crushes you with the weight of what it's calling us to do and and how far we fall short. They, they, They show us how helpless and bad we are at living for Jesus. And and so what the Sermon on the Mount does is it drives us to the Lord for more of his spirit in our lives and drives us to Jesus because we realize how much we need his grace. A third reason for our study, the more we live like this, says Lloyd-Jones, the more we will experience blessing in our lives. This is the road to blessing. We have a real tendency to seek God's blessing by looking for our next spiritual high, by looking for the next great religious experience, uh, moving music, something that we feel is really going to fire us up and excite us for Jesus. But you know what? God's power, God's blessing, that comes especially from just living for the Lord day by day. That is the life of blessing. That will satisfy your spirit and fill your hearts. Simple obedience. Fourth, following Jesus' teaching here may very well be the very best way to evangelize. Introducing people to Jesus, that's something we care deeply about. And Lloyd-Jones says, we don't need huge campaigns, special techniques, gimmicks to share the gospel, to attract people. More than anything else, he suggests, 
And I think he's on to something. The world just needs Christians living the Christian life. People know we worship Jesus, but they're wondering, does this faith, does this Jesus make a difference in his or her life, in how they live and act? They need to see in us that there's a power to Christian living. There's a joy that just exudes from us. There's a a peace and stability uh, that no matter what, no matter what is whirling all around us as believers. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3 that you and I are living letters, living letters from Christ. That means our lives are the message. By studying on the Sermon on the, the Sermon on the Mount, we can become better letters to reach others for Jesus. There's a fifth and final reason to study the Sermon on the Mount, and that is that true revival has happened in church history with God's people living this way of life out. You know, Christians don't talk much about revival these days, but what a tremendous blessing if God would bring revival in our time, in our lifetime, we need refreshing in our land, in our churches. And obviously, you can't manufacture revival. And maybe that's why, especially in our circles, we don't talk about it too much. We know we can't force it. We can't make it happen. God does that uh, with the special work of his, but there do seem to be some circumstances, some things that go hand in hand with revival pretty much every time. God's people are doing a couple of things every time it seems revival has come in powerful ways. One, and this isn't a surprise, it's when God's people are committed to prayer and they're on their knees confessing their sin, uh, giving God glory, praying for others. But secondly, something else that's always associated with revival is God's people really, truly living for Jesus. Simple, steady, fervent, day-by-day obedience, living in the blessing of God's salvation. And that's exactly what the Sermon on the Mount is about. So I hope those reasons start to get you a little bit excited about this series. The first beatitude. Beatitude comes means blessing, you know, the blessings. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Real simple this morning, we're going to ask who is Jesus talking about here? Who is blessed? Why are they blessed? And then draw a couple conclusions. The first question, who is Jesus talking about here? Who are the poor in spirit? Because he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. If you've heard a sermon on this before, you've probably heard poor in spirit explained as a poverty of spirit. In other words, blessed are those who have learned to see their sin and misery, and in that sense, know their great need before God. These are people who have nothing and know they have nothing, spiritually speaking. None of those ideas are wrong. They are scriptural. But I want you to consider with me this morning that 
maybe that is not the main teaching of this beatitude. There are a couple of great biblical interpreters from the last century who say that Jesus is referring especially to poor people here, straight up. This is about the poor. Those among God's children who struggle financially. I think there's something to what they're saying. It makes sense if you think about this Sermon on the Mount in the sweep of all Scripture. Matthew's writing his gospel especially to Jewish people to introduce them to Jesus. They knew that Moses was the great Old Testament leader of God's people. Matthew is showing Jesus many times in his gospel, but right here too, he's showing them that Jesus is the new and better and perfect Moses. As Moses went up a mountain to receive God's law, we hear, read, Jesus goes up a mountain to share God's law to his people in his day. This is God's law, the Sermon on the Mount, in light of the coming of Jesus. In the law of Moses, in Old Testament times, there was always a special emphasis on people in need in the land. We know this. God, through his people, basically introduced the idea of compassion to the world and the idea that that we look out and care for the vulnerable, the orphan, the widow, the alien, the poor. That's who the Old Testament is talking about. Moses and the prophets talked about this. Jesus comes in. He is fulfilling the law and the prophets. And in this very first teaching of his that we get in Matthew, he picks up this theme that was always such a priority for the people of God. Caring for the poor. Special heart of God for the poor. The trouble is, what do we do with that in spirit part? Doesn't that change the meaning of poor to be a spiritual poverty? Well, it's interesting. Luke has a version of the Sermon on the Mount in his book too. And in chapter 6 he says, Blessed are the poor, period. Matthew and Luke, they're quoting the same sermon, so they have to have the same meaning. Often we take Matthew's in spirit to say, well, Luke really meant to say in spirit too. But there's actually another way to take in spirit, which doesn't contradict the other gospel. One meaning of poor in spirit is to be so poor that it makes your spirit buckle under the weight of your poverty. So in spirit isn't spiritualizing poor, but it's strengthening it, emphasizing it. I think we need to consider that these verses are especially encouragement to those among God's children who have been beaten down because of their poverty. These, says Jesus, are blessed through faith in him. Why are the poor in spirit blessed? Our second question, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, which you become through faith in Jesus, you have everything you need. You become a member of the heavenly father's family, 
and as a child of his, you have an inheritance in Christ that's more glorious than anything you could ever imagine. If you're someone who's ever lived among people in great poverty, or maybe you've gone on a service project and served somewhere where there's great poverty, you notice a couple of things. One, you see firsthand just how crippling poverty can be, how it can reach into your spirit, as Jesus seems to be saying here. But second, I bet you've also noticed that for Christians in that situation, you'll often see a tremendous joy. And when we see that, it really puts us to shame, we who often have a much more comfortable living. It puts us to shame that we don't have that same joy in Jesus. Well, I think the reason for that joy of those believers is this first beatitude. Jesus says it, blessed are the poor in me. As a family, we visited my grandma Shuringa in Michigan the week after Christmas. And we noticed something uh, uh, kind of cool in there, and I think Sarah and the girls will remember it, a little chest that was in her room. I, don't, I never saw it before. And, and we asked her about this, this chest. Is that what you call it, a chest? Trunk. That's the better word, a trunk. Thank you. She said it belonged to her grandma Toringa, who took it with her on the boat from the Netherlands to Chicago, probably around the turn of the last century when a lot of people came from the Netherlands to Chicago. And it was about, I would say, four by three by two feet. It contained all the worldly belongings of her and her four kids. Her husband had died. So it was, it was her and her four kids, everything they owned. I mean, we can't even imagine that. Our kids to go to school every day with more stuff on their person than that practically, with instruments and sports gear and lunch and snacks and notebooks and, and books and an iPad. But you know what? You know, every, every single day we carry more than that on us. Those people, though, living with much less over a hundred years ago, you know what? They were blessed in Jesus. And I wonder sometimes if maybe they experienced the blessing more than we do who have so much more than we really need. One very poor person once told a pastor, Reverend, when I read that first beatitude, it makes me want to stay poor. Sounds foolish to a lot of us maybe, but you know what? That's not a foolish thing to say if you understand it right. That is someone with an active faith who has experienced that he has everything he needs truly if he belongs to Jesus. You know, we talk sometimes about all our stuff, our things, as blessings. Now, I think we should be very thankful for everything we have, our home or homes, our cars, our clothes, our big screen TV. But 
I don't think they are what the Bible means by blessings, are they? Are those our blessings? Or are those just things we're thankful for? We might get the language of blessing for stuff from preachers, and many of them on TV seem to do this, promise who promise health and wealth if you're a Christian, if you just have enough faith in Jesus. But you know what? That's not right. The Bible promises something much greater for those who belong to Jesus. The kingdom of heaven. Being heirs of God's kingdom. That's what makes us blessed. And I wonder if it's possible, actually, that wealth can hinder our blessedness. Jesus does warn about being careful of money an awful lot. The Bible says that the root of all kinds of evil is the love of money. They say, and I always talk about this in premarital counseling, they say that, the num- that money is the number one reason for couples separating and divorcing. And we all know money issues can cause all sorts of trouble in families. Could it be that if you're poor, you're better off because you aren't pulled down by the danger of riches? I wonder. Because, you know, there are people who have been eager to earn money, who have wandered from the faith and had all kinds of grief. At least that's what the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy 6, 9, and 10. And it's interesting, it doesn't seem that too many wealthy people follow Jesus. And that's hard for us because we live in a wealthy nation, and and so we tend to minimize this, I think. But the inner ring of disciples, Peter, James, and John, they were just poor fishermen. Often we think about them as small businessmen because that relates really well to our context. And and that maybe they were small business people, but they weren't well-to-do. They were poor. Most of Jesus' followers, while he walked this earth, would have been among the poor. Not all, but most. And that's how it's been for the majority of history. The gospel has thrived among the poor. All the statistics tell us that the growth of the church has plateaued at very best in the United States and Canada and Europe. But there's tremendous growth, many conversions, many people turning to Jesus in the poor nations, India being one of them. We can't comprehend the numbers. We don't see anything like it here. Could poverty and realizing their need for them have something to do with it that many people in our nation don't get anymore? So we've seen who this beatitude is referring to, the poor especially, why they are blessed. It's because they have the kingdom of heaven and Jesus. A couple conclusions. This is a great comfort, and it serves as a reminder. It's a beautiful comfort to those who have little or nothing in this world. Jesus says to you this morning, who don't have a lot of money, who have to watch every penny, who are living paycheck by paycheck, or not even getting a paycheck, who are worried about your retirement, who can't go on those vacations, Jesus says, you are blessed in me. Through faith in Jesus, 
You own something priceless. The beginnings of eternal joys in your humble home. You're living truly the best life, the blessed life, driving your old jalopy down the road if you've only got Jesus. You've got nothing to worry about. You can remove the long face. How could we ever compare to others or be sad about what we don't have, about stuff, stuff that rots and decays when we have it all in Jesus? Blessed are you, says Jesus. And of course, the promise of his blessing is always for everyone, rich, poor, in between, all people, no matter what you've done, every tribe, tongue, and nation. If you believe in Jesus, you too can be a child of the king, a citizen of heaven's kingdom, and have it all. We get the comfort. We also get a reminder out of this beatitude. It's a reminder of the danger of the love of money. It's a love that actually blocks entrance into the kingdom of God for some, like that rich young ruler in Jesus' day who chose his possessions over Jesus. It's a reminder to hold on to our stuff very loosely. And then we remember that they really aren't even ours. Everything we have belongs to the Lord. The first beatitude is a reminder to all who may not be poor that there's no comparison between our stuff and the blessing of the kingdom of heaven that we have through faith in Jesus. No comparison. The comparison between the two Reminds me of a little of the day this past fall, October or November, when Adriana, our four-year-old, came up with the idea, she got in her mind that she wanted to go to a pumpkin patch. She didn't even know what that was, but she heard about it from her little friends and got very excited about it. So we found this church in Villa Park near, I forget which one, it was near Prairie Path and Ardmore, and it had a bunch of pumpkins on their front lawn that they were selling as a fundraiser. We took her to this pumpkin patch. Adriana was thrilled, and it really broke our hearts because she thought that this was a pumpkin patch and was so excited that we took her to one. I mean, the rest of us know better We've got family in Michigan. We've been to real pumpkin patches before. Horse rides, apple cider, corn mazes, petting zoos. But Adriana was thrilled with so much less. Now, obviously, that's very sweet for Adriana. But let's not be living like a four-year-old, spiritually speaking. Let's not be thrilled playing with our trifling toys, as the hymn puts it. When we have so much more, our homes, our savings accounts, our treasures, in comparison to the kingdom of heaven, are rotting pumpkins 
God has so much more for us and so much more for us to do than spend all our energy and resources and worry on more earthly stuff. Now, of course, and this should go without saying, we are responsible and we plan financially for our future and for our lives. And, and some people are really gifted and it's a gift of God to make money, to use that gift of money uh, for others, for God's church and kingdom. But we don't love the money. We don't love our stuff. Our hearts can't be in them. And that's what can so easily happen according to Jesus. Instead, our hearts and energies need to be where the blessings are, right, friends? And that's the kingdom of heaven. We want to see God's church grow. We want to see the good news go out. We want to live the good news. We want to share the love of God. We want to serve those in need. Like we talked about last week, we want to claim every square inch of life as holy to the Lord. And that is what we are all about and striving to be all about here at Faith Church. Instead of living among the pumpkins, God invites you to believe in Jesus and enter the kingdom of heaven and be blessed. Instead of playing with the trifling toys of this earth, I invite you to be part of the kingdom, a vital part of the kingdom, by being an active part of this church in your serving, in your giving, in your praying. Are you? Are you an active, vital part of the kingdom? So many of you are. Keep it up. Praise the Lord. If not, will you decide to become a living citizen of the kingdom of God? I hope and pray so. And it's my prayer that many will enter the kingdom through faith in Jesus and have the blessed life because of the ministry of this church and of the ministry of churches worldwide. Blessed are all of you truly blessed when you belong to Jesus. Amen.